Today's word is from Romans 3, chapter, well, verses 1 to 20. What advantage, advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Were their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. And it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that God may, uh, good may result. Their condemnation is just. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the ch- charge that Jews and Gentiles are alike uh, all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. This is the word of God. Well, good morning. My name is Seth. I am the pastor at Wellspring Church in Queens, uh, formerly Trinity Grace Church, uh, Queens. Uh, We know you guys well. We follow your story. We pray for you guys. And I just want to thank Caleb and Josh uh, in particular for bringing me over from Queens today just to uh, be with you and talk about the devastation of the power of sin over all of you guys. It is just a joy here in the summer to come and just talk about how no one is righteous in here, not one of you, and we are all damned. So, it's good to be here in Park Slope. Um, It's probably the last time you'll want me here in your presence, so I'm just going to rip into it, all right? No, um, I really would like to pray before we jump in and and speak about the Word of God so that we do not just step in uh, flippantly to what he has to say. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we are so thankful for your presence, that you are a God who is alive and here and speaking with us right now, God, just, just pulling after, chasing after each heart here. God, you know each one of us even better than we know ourselves, God, so we invite you to come and speak, Lord, any piece of our heart for us who are expectant, for the things that are right on the surface, for the things that we're longing for you to draw out of us, God, we ask that you just come and meet us in those places. And for each one of us that is unexpected, that is jaded, that is, that is lost or wondering, 
God, would you meet us in that jaded sense of our spirit? Would you come in and be gentle with us? Would you speak with clarity and power? God, we do this all in your name. Amen. Amen. Now, I did want to take a moment before we jump into this full text on the power of sin in Romans to talk a little bit about the person who wrote the letter and the tone in which he wrote it. I know you guys have been diving into Romans. You're familiar this is a letter from Paul. But I think it's important in particular whenever we approach texts like this that convict us, that talk about sin, that are calling others out, that call ourselves out, uh, to remember the tone in which the letter is written. Otherwise, we'll sometimes let ourselves get beat down or sometimes we'll just be very defensive at the words that we're reading. And Romans is a long, long letter. But because you guys are going through it in these small chunks, verse by verse over these weeks, what you've been doing uh, for the last few weeks and this week too is just living in the sin portion. Now, of course, the grace is coming, unfortunately not today, but I promise you it's coming, and you guys will dive into the grace, and it will be robust, and it will be wonderful. But even in the midst of these tougher topics on sin, it's important to remember that Paul, as he was writing this, as he's laying out this this ministry manifesto of his, that Paul himself was known as being a lavishly gracious man. See, Paul was the minister who was tasked with expanding the gospel in an even greater way. Paul is the minister who's out there proclaiming a more inclusive gospel than anybody else had ever given. He's tasked with the growing of the church, of bringing in the Jews and also the Gentiles. It's his heart throughout this entire book. So it's his heart even in the midst of these texts, basically that poem of awfulness that we read. It's his heart to draw out the truth that everybody can find full freedom in Christ. And a key part to that process, just like any transformational process that you would know of, a key part to stepping into that freedom is first and foremost, awareness. Awareness. And basically, that's uh, the sermon in one word would just be awareness. That's what this text is all about. Paul's wanting everyone to carry an awareness and understand the power of sin. Because he wants every single person to experience freedom and health and salvation from the power of sin that exists inside their life. So therefore, what Paul's doing, he's like, I'm going to make it abundantly clear in the way that Paul only does with all his own arguments, with all his own caveats. He's like, I'm going to make sure I approach this idea of the power of sin from every single angle I possibly can. So right after Paul uh, first opened up that letter, you guys, I believe, began with the opening of Paul's letter to the Romans. It's this beautiful picture of the gospel. And right after that, he basically takes a really quick turn at the end of chapter 1 to talk about sin and to talk about judgment and to talk about wrath. And at the end of chapter 1, he first addresses the unrighteous heathen. And that's where we talk about uh, the sin that's right on the surface, The sin that we all know about, right? Sexual immorality, envy, greed, slander, not honoring your parents. But then Paul in chapter 2 comes at sin from a different angle. In chapter 2 he starts talking to hypocrites. Those who are touting and preaching what is true. Those who are judging others. But then they themselves are living in a very different way. And then today in chapter 3 he's going after yet another group of sinners. He's like I want to make it very clear that everybody falls under the power of sin. And that group he starts talking to this morning is perhaps the most complex or at least the most difficult to reach because it's a group of people who don't actually recognize that they're sinners. They don't actually fully own the fact that they themselves are broken. 
They're Jews who are in many ways doing whatever they can to live the law the best that they can. And basically, to sum it all up, Paul is essentially saying, hey, look, we are all broken. From the unrighteous heathen to the religious elite, no one is righteous, not one person. And because of that, there is a power in sin. It's not just merely a blemish. It's not just merely some mistake that we've made here and there, but there is actual, physical, tangible power in sin. And he does not want any person to underestimate the power of sin. He's making it very clear that every single person's in the same boat. And I think that's something that we say often. We say, oh yeah, we're all in the same boat, we're all broken. But I think the problem with that is do we actually believe it? We say that we're all broken, do we actually believe it? So look, you know the old adage, you don't judge a book by its cover, right? And I, of course, believe in that. It's important. I try not to judge a book by its cover. It's an important message, especially in character analysis of some kind of individual. And at the same time, I also uh, understand the value of it. I also just don't really abide by it. I often judge a book by its cover. And in the world of marketing, too, right, I understand that there is intentional manipulation going on by design and by marketing, Right? There's the golden ratio where there's certain ratios that are really appealing to the eye. Like designers intentionally are choosing a color that they want to evoke some kind of emotional response. They want me to see some kind of value in the product. There are times that we will pick a color specifically because it represents a more classic vibe. Or we'll pick a color uh, when we're designing a product because we want it to seem like it's more cutting edge. I understand all of those things, but to be honest, I don't really care because I'm just a self-proclaimed sucker for packaging. Right? Like, I don't know about you, but I am obsessed with Fiji water. I always have been. It has that square bottle with the waterfall in the back. And every time I drink it, it's just like I'm in the cascade of that waterfall in the tropics. It's so refreshing. And I gladly pay, pay that extra 79 cents when I buy that bottle. I love Fiji water. But really, in the end, right, Fiji water is still just water. No matter how dressed up it is, no matter how curated the bottle actually is, the substance is the same. Maybe a few nuances here and there, but it's still just some high-quality H2O, am I right? Okay, so look at it. There's there's an artist named Dan Meth. He's an American artist, and he kind of riffed off this idea a little bit further. You probably saw some of his work online. He basically took all these snacks and junk foods in America, and he did a redesign, basically in such a way that he said, quote-unquote, hipsters would buy these products. So here's the first picture. It's a modern-day fruit by the foot, as we all know it, next to his hipster redesign in this very classic French tin. All right, so the next one is a box of Cap'n Crunch Crunch Berries, of course. And he went the vintage angle with the hipster box. Or next year, this is a great one. He goes after Hostess Twinkies. And he puts them this here in this beautiful, like a cigar box, beautifully curated, lovely, golden, delicious treats. It's amazing. And lastly, this is my favorite. But he takes those greasy packages of those mystery meat Slim Jims in the hipster redesign of these Slim James. It's so good. Who doesn't want those in their life? Look, basically what Paul is doing is he's taking time at the beginning of his letter to say, hey, as hard as this may be for some of you, let's all just take an honest look at ourselves. Let's peel off all the labels. 
Let's peel off pagan. Let's peel off heathen. Let's peel off Jew. Let's peel off Gentile. Let's remove all the barriers and all the justifications. Paul's saying, basically, look it, on some level, we're all Slim Jims. It's my heart and my prayer, Paul says, that we all understand the reality of our brokenness so that we can then understand and fully embrace the power of grace that's offered to us. And it's that idea, if we're really honest with ourselves, right, the idea that we are fundamentally broken, that we are sinful, that we ourselves are Twinkies and Slim Jims. It's not something anybody really likes to talk about. Outside the church, of course, but even inside the church. And that's because we all have a tendency to want to justify ourselves and our actions. On many levels, our default mode as humans is justification. That's hardwired in us because all of us, Christian or not, have this longing inside of us ultimately to be righteous. We have this core longing to be made righteous. But the problem is what we do is we often try first to justify ourselves. So take a moment right now and just think about the last time that somebody critiqued you or critiqued your work or or criticized a decision that you made. What was your immediate response to that criticism? What bubbled up inside of you? You see, we, we do have this knee-jerk tendency to want to justify our actions. To want to, to justify, you don't understand the motives, where I was coming from. We almost bristle in our culture, don't we, at the idea of anybody wanting to judge us? It's like the ultimate insult in this city when somebody offers any form of critique. is like, don't judge me. You don't know me. You don't know my life. It's so, so hard to come to terms with the brokenness that exists inside of our own hearts. See, it's not just that the world is bad, which it is. It's not just that bad things happen in this world, which it does. But the truth is that that we are bad. There's actually evil inside of all of us. There's a quote that gets at this in a a great way and always cuts to the heart uh, for me. It says, only if it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who's willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? That's tough, right? Who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? The realization that that line of good and evil cuts through our very own hearts is hard to come to terms with. That our best intentions are often mixed with our worst, if we're honest. That even our beautiful and our just desires can at times be laced with selfish gain or personal pursuits. There's a story, I think, that helps us understand this, uh, basically part of the human condition, the human psyche, uh, that uh, comes around this old hymn in the 20th century by a guy named Philip Bliss. This is how the hymn goes. It says, Man of sorrows, wondrous name, for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. This is a beautiful hymn. 
But actually, in the 20th century, this hymn began very specifically and intentionally being omitted from worship in a lot of churches. Now, not all songs and hymns in that time about the cross were being omitted. In fact, uh, many churches in that time actually used the cross, as they do today, as the primary symbol of the church. Because the idea and the problem here with this hymn was not that people had a hard time emotionally dealing and even identifying with the cross as Christians. Which I actually believe is still true today, right? Many of us are horrified by the pain that Jesus endured. We're moved by the self-sacrifice that he offered on our behalf. Many of us even understand like the injustice of it all, of this innocent man that was crucified and that bothers us and it makes our stomachs churn. But it's not the emotion of the cross that this is why this hymn was used less and less. The problem was actually not with the death of Jesus, but rather with worshipers in these churches having a hard time identifying themselves as quote-unquote ruined sinners. There was an increasing distaste to people confessing themselves as guilty, vile, and helpless we. And therefore, the hymn was removed altogether. See, this is something I think we still really struggle with today. I once had a seminary professor who said, man, two of the greatest challenges you're going to have as a pastor is first and foremost convincing religious lost people that they're actually lost. And then secondly, it's to convince the irreligious lost that you're not just trying to make them like the religious lost. See, when we do not allow ourselves to come to a place of awareness about the power of sin that exists, what we find is that we're constantly just losing ourselves in a pendulum swing. A pendulum swing that I say is like really going back and forth between these two things that I want to talk about, which is pretending and performing. These two different postures that we carry if we don't fully allow ourselves to become aware of the power of sin. So pretending, that's where we find ourselves actually just minimizing the power of sin and the influence of sin in our life. Or performing, where we're essentially just trying to save ourselves and what we're doing is really minimizing the power of grace that exists in our lives. So first, this posture of pretending. And it can work itself out in a lot of ways. So I'm going to just offer a few different postures of the way pretending can work itself out in your life. And I want you to think about which of these postures perhaps most resonates with you. Okay, so first of all, the posture here under pretending of defending. You may say this, if I'm honest, I actually find it difficult to receive feedback about weaknesses or sin. When confronted, my tendency is to explain things away, to talk about my successes instead, or to justify my decisions. As a result, I rarely have conversations about difficult things in my life. Defending. Or maybe for you, it's a posture of hiding. I tend to conceal as much as I can about my life especially the bad stuff. And this is a little bit different in that pretending can be about impressing, but hiding's really just more about shame. It's that you don't think people will really accept the real you, and so you hide it. Or perhaps blaming. You're quick to blame others for sin or circumstances. You have a difficult time owning your own contributions to sin or conflict because there's this element of pride that assumes it's not really your fault and or a fear of rejection if it ends up actually being your fault. Then there's this posture of exaggerating. Maybe this is you. I tend to think and talk more highly of myself than I ought to. I make things, good and bad, out to be much bigger than they actually are, usually for some form of attention. And as a result, things often get more attention than they deserve. And they have a way of making me stressed out and anxious. 
And lastly, I think this one is really common uh, for us, and that's minimizing. I tend to just downplay sin or circumstances in my life as if they're just normal or really just not that bad. As a result, things often don't get the attention they really deserve, and they have a way of mounting up to becoming overwhelming. So that posture of minimizing, too, as we are in this battle of pretending here, usually works out something like this. You do something wrong, and you say, oh, I just messed up. I messed up. And obviously, there's truth in that statement, right, that you messed up. But I don't think it's always the truth that we're fully going for when we say it. So I think a lot of us will say that almost as a way of exonerating ourselves. But just acknowledging the fact that we screwed up, that we messed up, actually does not exonerate us. I mean, it's true that there are certain situations that you probably wouldn't have done that sinful thing. There's probably absolutely certain scenarios where you really would not have made that wrong choice. And it also is, hear me on this, absolutely true that whatever that sinful thing or whatever that wrong choice is in your life does not truly define you. That, that wrong choice, that wrong moment does not fully represent who you are. However, what the truth is, is that you and I are fundamentally the kind of people that mess up. At our core, we are people that mess up. We don't even live up to our own standards. I know I certainly don't much less trying to live up to the standards of a heavenly father. That's why we need a savior. So then I want to jump to the other side of that pendulum swing. From pretending, let's go over to that posture of performing in our lives. And this occurs when there's usually some form of recognition in our hearts of brokenness. We're carrying some kind of awareness, but perhaps it's just not complete. So therefore, we get caught up in trying to just work out this Christian life in our own strength. It's in this moment that we're actually, what we're doing is we're failing to recognize that Jesus is really our only hope for redemption. And it's not that we don't think that we actually need Jesus. We actually acknowledge Jesus as our Savior. But as our insecurities begin to rise and we begin to work out our lives, we've come to this place where we feel like we need Jesus plus a little bit of something else to justify our existence and who we are. And it's so dangerous, right? This one, because it's so insidious, because it's often good things that you're using in your life to self-justify your own righteousness. But really what you're doing slowly over time is allowing those things to become your functional saviors. What you're really doing is embarking on a self-salvation project. It's really a subtle form of self-righteousness. So I just, I just jotted down a bunch of these for us to kind of talk through these ideas of, of these areas, how actually you could be falling into these subtle forms of self-righteousness. So here's one, job righteousness. Maybe you identify with this one. If I work hard, God will reward me because God helps those who help themselves. And you're like, oh, that's not me. It's family righteousness. I take pride in how I raise my kids and how I function as a parent And therefore, I believe I'm respected by my peers. I I respect myself more, and I think God respects me more because of how I parent in a godly way. Or theological righteousness. I have good theology. God is pleased with me because I understand true and pure and correct doctrine. Or intellectual righteousness. I'm a better read, a more articulate, and more culturally savvy than most of my peers, which makes me superior. Or schedule righteousness. It's an interesting one. I'm self-disciplined. I'm rigorous in my time management. God is pleased with my stewardship of time. 
Now, some of you be like, oh man, that is definitely not me. I am not great at stewarding my time. But I would say, look at this. You actually also could be self-righteous in the opposite direction with flexibility righteousness. Being like, man, look, in a world that's so busy, I'm flexible. I'm relaxed. I always have time for other people. God really appreciates my laid back demeanor. Mercy righteousness. Mercy, a beautiful thing, right? Oh, but you get to this place where you say, I care more about the poor and the disadvantaged than most people. God appreciates me more and thinks of me as better than others as I pour myself out on behalf of the marginalized. Legalistic righteousness. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't do drugs, I don't date those who do. God is pleased because I have strong moral convictions. Financial righteousness. I manage more money wisely and stay out of debt, so God must think highly of me. Political righteousness. Man, if you really love God, you'll vote for my candidate. If you really love God, at least you won't vote for that candidate. Or this one, right? Maybe the biggest one. Tolerance righteousness. I'm open-minded. I'm charitable toward those who don't agree with me. In fact, I'm a lot like Jesus in that way. See, we can just keep going down that list. Social media righteousness, green righteousness, etc. Just think about basically anything that gives you a sense in your heart as being good enough. Anything that you fully take pride in that feel, you feel like it, this makes me worthy. And all these things, many of them such good things, are, if they're not held under that reality of the need for a savior, can bring us to find our own righteousness in what we do instead of a place of honesty in our brokenness and the wonder and awe and the holiness of God that is poured out on our behalf. You see, and failure to confront our own brokenness keeps us in this place of constantly swinging back and forth between pretending and performing. And when you're winning at that game, you feel really superior. And when you're failing at that game, you literally feel like the worst. You're either in a place of superiority or you're in a place of inferiority. You're either crushed by the weight of your sin. You're constantly just messing up, so you're trying to just stuff that stuff down. Or you're winning at the game, and you find yourself in this place of piety and basically elitism and self-righteousness. In the text this morning in Romans 3, it's really just one small section in the midst of this really large, beautiful letter. But in it, we are given a gift. In this moment, in this letter, we are given the gift of awareness. And as we all know, that is the first step in the healing process. Have you heard about that disease, uh, CIP? It's congenital insensitivity to pain. This is a disease in which the individual does not actually have the ability to sense or feel any kind of pain. So you may actually hear that. You'll be like, wow, that's actually a pretty great disease to have. But the problem is it's actually a really dangerous disease to have. Because these individuals, while they cannot feel any pain, the problem is they have no idea when their actions and things in their life are actually hurting them. Therefore, their problem and the danger of this disease is that they are drastically underestimating the damage that's happening to their body. And this is what I think so often happens in our culture. We're numb to pain. We're numb to the reality of sin at work in our life. We're numbed by all of our self-salvation projects. We're numb to how much we're actually damaging our souls. And so what Paul is doing here is he's doing everything he can in the opening of this letter so that we can be aware, so that we can repent, so that we can have full awareness of the power of sin over us. Because ultimately what God longs for is complete healing. He longs for complete freedom for each 
person. And the start of that is a recognition of the brokenness that's inside all of us. A.W. Tozer said, the reason why many are still troubled, still seeking, still making little forward progress is because they haven't yet come to the end of themselves. We're still trying to give orders and interfering with God's work within us. In our culture today, I believe it is easier for us to confront the brokenness and the injustices in the outside world than it is to actually confront the brokenness inside of our own hearts. It's that stark moment of desperation when we come to terms with the fact that we actually are part of the problem. That we actually cannot fix ourselves, much less fix all the problems in the world. It's that moment that we come to terms with the truth that no one is righteous, not one. As Paul, in verse 20, kind of concludes this section, he says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But see, our loving Father there doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't leave us as this place of being conscious of our sin and our brokenness. He doesn't want us to be defined by our sin and by our brokenness. He actually wants us to be defined by righteousness. That's why that is that core longing in our hearts. As it says in 1 Peter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. In that famous quote in scripture, by his wounds you have been healed. That's the message of the gospel, right? The message of the gospel is the removal of the power of judgment and the power of sin over us. But the message of the gospel is not, man, God loves you so much that God just accepts you as you are in the midst of your brokenness. Now, the message of the gospel is even greater. The message of the gospel is that God loves you so much that God accepts you as Christ is. Jesus bears the curse in his body, the curse that we rightfully deserve, and he gives us his righteousness. And so how do we take on that righteousness? Well, we give ourselves over fully to the creator, and we step into the light. And we step into the light through confession. Confession, really, is just a letting go of pretending and performing in our lives. And I just think there's an often misconception with confession, especially in Christian circles, that really all confession is is an admission of defeat. But that is just far from the truth. In reality, Jesus made confession a cry of victory. For every single sin, for every little uh, topic of brokenness that's referenced in these first three chapters of Romans, there's freedom that's offered through Christ on the other side of that sin. The ultimate story of the cross, as we read, actually, is concluded in Colossians 2. I just want to read one verse from there. It says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, Jesus did not come to bring us humiliation for our sin. Right, so that we confess and we find our place in this place of humiliation that we're actually supposed to be this people who's, who's always groveling and talking about how broken we are. I'm not in that camp. That's not the message of the gospel. Jesus did not come to bring humiliation. He came actually to humiliate and triumph over the powers and the authorities that are behind sin itself. Jesus allowed himself to be humiliated. He allowed himself to be fully naked on the cross. He allowed himself to take on all that brokenness. And in turn, he then humiliated the darkness. He made, as it says, a public spectacle of the darkness. 
He did that so that we can just step forward freely in confession. He did that so that we can step forward into the light and not find humiliation, but find freedom. The light doesn't expose us and bring us shame. That's not what the light does. The light humiliates and scatters the darkness. So as we close this morning, it would just, I feel like, be remiss to not approach this text and go into the question for us honestly in our hearts of how are we doing with awareness? Like in your own heart, asking yourself the question, what is actually stopping me from acknowledging the brokenness inside of me this morning? What would be stopping me from actually fully stepping into the light? And honestly, you could ask, what's the scariest thing that could happen if you did that? Like if you stepped into the light on whatever that means for you this morning, is the scariest thing that would happen is that people actually know you for who you really are? That you would actually just be fully exposed? And that would be hard in the moment, but it would open you up to an eternity of freedom. Because freedom is the promise of God. Freedom is what your inheritance is in Christ. See, when we live in fear, and fear is that thing that really holds us back from this, fear just gives sin more power. Because darkness, all darkness is, is deception. It's a fraud. It allows sin to keep on living. It allows fear to win the day. So as we keep things in the dark, it just allows that sin to fester. It's actually fear that just keeps us from acknowledging the areas where we're broken. Broken. It's, it's fear that keeps us from bringing it out into the light and rendering it useless and powerless. It's fear that is actually just sowing that lie into you, getting you to forget that Jesus already won the day. Therefore, confession should not be fear-driven, but confession is a shout of victory. Confession is a shout of victory. So um, I'm going to just pray over us this morning. I don't know you. Um, you don't know me. I don't know the stories of your life, but I know we serve a God who knows every intricate detail. And so what I'd like actually is if we could even just um, stand in response as we pray. And just even in your own heart and in your own mind, open yourselves up to these questions, these honest moments that we always uh, don't allow ourselves to get to as we just uh, skim across the surface of life. How are you doing with awareness? Please pray with me. Father God, we just ask you and God, we openly come before you wanting your presence. God, even right now, I believe there are strongholds in this city. There are even strongholds in this room. Strongholds in this church, in our lives. Areas of sin that are just woven so tightly into the fabric of how we do life in this city that we actually don't even notice them anymore. God, I ask for a spirit of illumination this morning. Would you come and reveal those areas right now in the name of Jesus? God, we're asking for a sensitivity of heart in this place, God. A sensitivity of our spirits. And I believe there's some uh, here in this place 
actually this morning that know exactly the brokenness in their life right now. That as we begin speaking about sin, maybe this is you, as soon as we start talking about this topic, it just comes to your mind immediately. In fact, if anything, your awareness problem is that you're aware of it all too much because it comes up every single time. My prayer right now is just, Jesus, would you come and just not allow that area of sin to be in existence any longer, God, that we would not be a people that underestimates the power of what that sin is actually doing to separate us from you. How that sin is actually damaging our souls. I just ask if that is you, if there is a sin that is just right on the surface, you would come into a place right now of asking the Father, God, come and convict my heart afresh. Give me eyes to see this broken as as you do, to not just treat it as if it's something I need to just hold on to, as something that I just need to pass by that is actually just a part of life, as part of being broken. No, it's not. No, it's not. That's not a part of being broken. Jesus offers you full freedom. I think others in this room perhaps are maybe in a place of just managing sin, just white-knuckling it. Maybe that's you and and there's something, as we've talked, like there's sin bubbling up in your life and all you've been doing is trying to white-knuckle it in your own strength, trying to attempt your own salvation project. And for you, I think that victory cry this morning is just honest confession. When was the last time that you were just in a place of honest confession of saying, I am broken, God? I want to come out of the darkness and into the light. I want to stop trying to control God, I just pray right now, even just like a spirit of control would just, just fall off in this room. God, you did not ask us to be able to control the power of sin. You did not ask us to have to overcome it, God. You already defeated it, God. May we enter into the freedom of what it is to accept your righteousness. As we respond today in worship and as we come forward around the Lord's table, God, we ask that your spirit would come in, Lord, a spirit of confession in our hearts and minds. God, you know our stories. You know our motives. You know the areas that ensnare us even greater than we do, God. Come, Lord Jesus, and just wash our hearts clean. Wash our hearts clean. Once once sin is confessed... Once sin is confessed to Jesus, all the power is immediately taken from it. So if you feel like there is a power or if there is something that is holding on or has any power over you right now, by you dragging it into the light, the power from that is immediately taken away through the power of Jesus. So as we respond this morning, uh, Lord Jesus, we just say come. Come Holy Spirit and touch our hearts. Amen.